Hey there, real quick before we jump into this episode, I originally recorded this podcast a few weeks ago for the Founders Postscript feed. After thinking about it for some time, I realized it was silly to have two separate feeds, so I'm putting all uh, every podcast I make, obviously, on this feed. The way you'll know it's a bonus episode is it won't be numbered. Uh, so these are episodes that are not about biographies, but they're still about books that I've read uh, based on some kind of historical event or historical person, and the idea is still the same. I'm still looking for ideas that we can use in our lives. Uh, this book was originally recommended by Elon Musk. It's one of the most fascinating 100-page books that I've ever come across, so I hope you enjoy this episode. Since man is a moment in time, a transient guest of the earth, a spore of his species, a scion of his race, a composite of body, character, and mind, a member of family and a community, a believer or doubter of faith, a unit in an economy, perhaps a citizen in a state, or a soldier in an army? We may ask under the corresponding heads, astronomy, geology, geography, biology, psychology, morality, religion, economics, politics, and war, what history has to say about the nature, conduct, and prospects of man. It is a precarious enterprise, and only a fool would try to compress a hundred centuries into a hundred pages of hazardous conclusions. We proceed. That is an excerpt from the book that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is The Lessons of History, the celebrated collections of essays compiling over 5,000 years of history by two of the greatest thinkers of our time, and it was written by Will and Ariel Durant. Lessons of History is a book that's been recommended by countless different entrepreneurs that I've heard on podcasts. Most recently, Elon Musk talks about everybody should read it. It is a hundred-page book. Um, I actually think there's a lot more room for books to be around 100 pages. I don't think I, they have to be all, you know, most of them are three, 400 pages. Some of them are 1,900. Uh, but I think you could tell uh, a very convincing story in 100 pages. So if you don't know who Will and Ariel Duran is, the reason that they become so, they're probably, they're probably the most read um, historians in the last, you know, 150 years. Uh, especially in the West. So they wrote, they worked on this project for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. It's called The the Story of Civilization. And especially their book on the age of Napoleon, uh, that book uh, was recommended by Elon Musk, Larry Ellison, uh, a bunch of other people. But what they did is just like they said in, um, in that introduction here, after they completed this multi-decade long uh, project, and the, this book is very old, this book was first published in 1968, you know, they have thousands and thousands of pages. They try to say, hey, how can we distill human nature and history down to 100 pages? And that one of that that sentence, um, actually, what is it? Two. It's one sentence. This is, it is a precarious enterprise and only a fool would try to compress a hundred centuries into a hundred pages of hazardous conclusions. I love the next line. It says we proceed. And I love that because they're saying, hey, this is really a foolish endeavor, but we're going to go ahead anyways because there's some value here to try to compress everything we learned over multiple decades of studying history and human nature into lessons of history that you can read in a few hours. So let me just go ahead and jump into that. Um, I'm just This is going to be really completely random. Uh, this is from the section called History and Earth, and it says, let us define, so this is the first lesson of history. And that's be modest, which I love. Let us define history as the events are records of the past. Human history is a brief spot in space, and its first lesson is modesty. At any moment, a comet 
A comet may come too close to Earth and set our little globe turning topsy-turvy in a hectic course, or choke its men and fleas with fume or heat, or a fragment of the smiling sun may slip off tangentially and fall upon us in a wild embrace, ending all grief and pain. There is... I don't even know how to describe the way they write. And I, maybe I'll go through, that'd be a very ambitious project, but maybe I will go through, and if I do, I'd do it on this feed, um, and just read their entire collection. I mean, that would take me a few years to complete, because um, I'm obviously reading a lot of books for, for the main founder's feed. Um, but after reading this, it's like, you know, that that's a worthy endeavor. It's a, probably a good time well spent. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because they they write in almost like a poetic I can't even describe it. They, I mean, just listen to that. Listen to, and though the, uh, a fragment of the smiling sun may slip off tangentially and fall upon us in a wild embrace, ending all grief and pain. There's a lot of information in that sentence, and it's very poetic. It's almost like they're writing. It's almost like lyrics to 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 music is the way they write. It's very interesting. Let me continue. Um, and I'll tell you the note I left myself after this. Generations of men establish a growing mastery over the earth, but they are destined to become fossils in its soil. Again, really beautiful writing, and I'm going to translate that into the words I would use. And It's like, I don't, David, you don't have much time. Don't waste it. Go. And this next, I'm just going to share one uh, sentence with you. I think it's very interesting. Again, they're writing this in the 1960s. And we're living through this right now. It says the influence of geographic factors diminishes as technology grows. And then here's some thoughts that they have on competition and selection. It says the laws of biology are the fundamental lessons of history. We are subject to the processes and trials of evolution, to the struggle for existence, and the survival of the fittest to survive. So the first biological lesson of history is that life is competition. Competition is not only the life of trade, it is the trade of life. Peaceful when food abounds, violent when the mouths outrun the food. Animals eat one another without qualm. Civilized men consume one another by due process of law. Co cooperation is real and increases with social development, but mostly because it is a tool and form of competition. We cooperate in our group. That could be our family, community, club, church, party, race, company, nation, in order to strengthen our group in its competition with other groups. We are acquisitive, greedy, and pugnacious because our blood remembers millenniums through which our forebears had to chase and fight and kill in order to survive, and had to eat to their gastric capacity for fear they should not capture another feast. War is a nation's way of eating. It promotes cooperation because it is the ultimate form of competition. The second biological lesson of, lesson of history is that life is selection. In the competition for food or mates or power, some organisms succeed and some fail. In the struggle for existence, some individuals are better equipped than others to meet the tests of survival. Then he continues this and he ties it into economic development. Um, how differentiation produces unequal value. And the note I left myself is you, you need to learn and optimize for this. And I'll explain to what I mean in, in a second. Inequality is not only natural and inborn, it grows with the complexity of civilization. So the, the civilization we're living in today, in present day, is much more complex than the one that he, uh, he lived in when he's writing these words, but it's even more true. And that's why I said like you have to keep 
you have to optimize. You have to realize, like, what we're doing right now, studying from history. First of all, one, very few people do it, even though it's a fantastic idea. And two, over a long period of time, it gives you a massive advantage. And these small advantages compound, meaning uh, they compound over and over time, it can separate you from the people that do not do this activity. He talks about it's completely natural if you study history that there's going to be inequality. There's going to be inequality in, in, um, in knowledge. There's going to be inequality in talent, uh, inequality in the the competition for resources, which I found very interesting. So he says, and he's going to continue this, economic development, he and she, I should say, economic development specializes functions, differentiates abilities, and makes men unequally valuable to their group. Why is that important? Because in, an, in a free market economy like the ones that we function in, if you are unequal, unequally valuable to your group, meaning to you're only successful in, in, in a free market economy in the relation to how much you serve other humans, right? And you're rewarded for how much you serve other humans. So I really like that. Economic devel- development specializes functions differentiates abilities and makes men unequally valuable to their group. So you should be working on your craft. You should be getting smarter, finding ideas that can help you in your day-to-day work because that's going to differentiate your ability, which is going to make you unequally valuable to compared to the people around you. For freedom and equality are sworn and everlasting enemies. And when one prevails, the other dies. Leave men free and their natural inequalities will multiply almost geometrically. So I kind of ran over my own point there, right? Those who are conscious of, su- conscious of superior ability desire freedom. And in the end, superior ability has its way. Utopias of equality are biologically doomed. So there's a section on race and history. I'll just give you the main point because he goes through all these all these different times in history. These people are separated by th- hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years. They're separated by thousands of miles, and they all come to this conclusion that like, oh, I I'm part of a superior race. And he's like, well, that's you know, some weaknesses in the race theory theory are obvious. He states, he's like, you just have to look that there's been talented people everywhere. There's intelligent people everywhere, different times, different places, different races. So he says, history is colorblind. And can develop a civilization in any favorable environment under almost any skin. Okay, so this may be my favorite part. The note I left myself is human nature does not change. This part is so good. This may be my favorite part of the book. And what he's going to say here is really something that's been known. You can tell Jeff Bezos knows this. Charlie Munger knows this. Warren Buffett knows this. David Ogilvie knew this. Um, They talk about it openly. That you You focus on things that do not change. And that humans over time react very similar to if you expose them to all if you expose uh, people to the same stimuli, you the the way they react is very very similar. Uh, known history shows little alteration in the conduct of mankind. The Greeks of Plato's time behave very much like the French of modern centuries, and the Romans behave like the English. Means and instrumentalities change. Motives and ends remain the same. To act or rest, he's giving us some choices we have. To act or rest, he or she, I keep saying it, I keep, it's Will and Ariel Durant, they both wrote this book. To act or rest, to acquire or give, to flight or retreat, to seek association or privacy, to mate or reject, to offer or resent parental care. Nor does human nature alter as between classes. By and large, the poor have the same impulses as the rich, with only less opportunity or skill to implement them. 
Nothing is clearer in history than the than the adoption by successful rebels of the methods they were mo- they were once accustomed to condemn in the forces they deposed. So that's a very important sentence. Let me read that again. Nothing is clearer in history than the than the adoption by successful rebels of the methods they were accustomed to condemn them in the forces they deposed. So one of the best uh, illustrations of that point, if you want to read fiction, is George Orwell's uh, Animal Farm, right? Um, I also think it applies to businesses. You have the startup that finds, that does something better than existing companies, right? Then it grows into an existing company and it, it adopts the same behaviors of the company that it overthrew, uh, this is also true for companies, it's true for nations, it's true for governments, it's true for people in general. Uh, going back to this part, there's a, I highlighted a lot of this, so this is going to be, I think, the longest individual part I read to you. Uh, new situations, however, do arise, requiring novel, unstereotyped responses. Hence, development in the higher organisms require a capacity for experiment and innovation. Here, the initiative individual... So these are a lot of the people that we study on Founders, right? Here, the initiative individual, the great man, the hero, the genius, regains his place as a formative force in history. He grows out of his time and land and is the product and symbol of events as well as their agent and voice. Without some situation requiring a new response, his new ideas would be untimely and impractical. Impractical. Impracticable? When he is a hero of action, the demands of his position and the exaltation of crisis develop and inflate him to such magnitude and powers as as in normal times have remained potential and untapped. So really the way I would summarize that, that's a, sorry I'm mispronouncing everything, but we talked about this over and over again, that you have the right place, you have the person that's at the right place at the right time with the right set of skills, right? And if they weren't, they were born in a different, time even if they had the same skills just because they weren't in the right time in history their impact in history is going to be vastly different so think about henry ford uh his one goal in life was to mass produce an automobile so everybody could afford one and by doing so by being in the right place in history at the right time he was able to do so but put him back in 1700s same person same capability same thoughts he's not getting that done uh, at times, his eloquence, like Churchill's, may be worth a thousand regiments. His foresights and strategy and tactics, like Napoleon's, may win battles and campaigns in established states. If he is a prophet like Muhammad, wise in the means of inspiring men, his words may raise a poor and disadvantaged people to un- unpremeditated ambitions and surprising power. A Pasteur, a Morse, an Edison, a Ford, a Wright, a Marx, a Lenin, a Mao Zedong are effects of numberless, numberless causes and causes of endless effects. Again, that, this is what I mean. They, they write like they're, they're writing poetry. They're effects of numberless causes and causes of endless effects. That's crazy sentence right there. If you think about how impactful, like it took a lot of things for them to, to, to be who they turned into. And then once they were the people they, they turned into, think about all the effects that they, that they cause, their, that their life, uh, uh, that the story of their life and the impact of their life, like the reverberations through history that they have. The Im- Now, this is really interesting. This is, I have notes all over the book. Like, what a sentence. This is a hell of a sentence. This is another example of that here. The imitative majority, meaning the people that imitate, right? And I'm sure not pronounce that word correctly. The imitat- the imitating majority, let me do that. The imitating majority follows the innovating minority 
And this follows the originative individual in adapting new responses to the demands of environment or survival. Out of every 100 new ideas, 99 or more will probably probably be inferior to the to the traditional responses which they propose to replace. No one man, however brilliant or well-informed, can come in one lifetime to such fullness of understanding as to safely judge and dismiss the customs or institutions of his society. This goes back to the first lesson of history being modest, right? We, You and I can study and learn, and hopefully we do this our entire lives, and yeah, we'll set ourselves apart from the people that don't do that activity. But even that, we could spend every waking hour of a very long life learning and we're still not going to understand the world that we're born into. Let me go back to this. No one man, however brilliant or well-informed, can come in one lifetime to such fullness of understanding as to safely judge and dismiss the customs or institutions of his society. For these are the wisdom of generations after centuries of experiment in the laboratory of history. Jesus, this is good writing. So let me... um. There's a book that uh, my birth is in August, and every year I try to, um, if I don't have time to to reread it, I have the audiobook, I have the hardcover book, I have the paperback, uh, I have the um, the Kindle version. So I think this year I listened to it, if I'm not if I'm remembering correctly. But it's called um, it's by this writer named Asim Taleb, and it's anti fragile things that gain from disorder. Um, and I love the book's just uh, fantastic. It's part of his inserto. It's multiple books. Fooled by Randomness, Black Swan, Anti-Fragile, The Bed of Crusties, and Skin in the Game, I think, are the ones that he's published so far. Um, I've read all of them, but if you could only read one, I'd recommend reading Anti-Fragile. But the reason I bring that up now, because I think uh, it's it's his work, Taleb's work, is echoing what Will and Ariel Durant are saying in that paragraph. Somebody asked him, you know, he made up a new word, and what the hell is anti-fragile? Like, what is anti-fragility? And he's like, how would you exp- explain the concept of anti-fragility to a five-year-old? And he said, time is smarter than you. It took five words. And that, that book is, it's a, what, 600 pages? I don't have it in front of me. So it, it's a big book. I think it might be the longest in the entire series of Inserto, if I remember correctly. But time is smarter than you. And that's exactly what Will and Ariel Durant are saying. No one man, no one woman, however brilliant or well-informed, can come in one lifetime to such fullness of understanding as to safely judge and dismiss the customs or institutions of his society, his or her society, for these are wisdoms of generations after centuries of experiment in the laboratory of history. I could see why people like Elon Musk, again, not somebody that's prone to waste time, would recommend reading this book. Moving forward, uh, I would summarize this section as survival at all costs. History remains, at bottom, a natural selection of the fittest individuals and groups in a struggle wherein goodness receives no favors, misfortunes abound, and the final test is the ability to survive. And this is a great way they summarize the point they're making. Nature and history do not agree with our conceptions of good and bad. They define good as that which survives and bad as that which goes under. Okay, now we get to the part about economics and history. There's a lot going on in just a few paragraphs here. I got some notes I'll tell you about. History reports that men... This is going to be... Again, this is very poetic. I might have to read this to you a few times, though, because I had to read it a few times to understand. History reports that the men who can manage men manage the men who can manage only things, and the men who can manage money manage all. Let me read that again. History reports that the men who can manage men manage the men who can manage only things. So if you can manage men, 
You're going to be managing the people that can only manage things. But there's one step above that. And the man who manages the money manages them all. So the, the way I would, um, I've mentioned this on other past episodes of Founders, is the way I think about it is, is I want to be strong, right? I want to build up strength so I can be the, the best version of myself I can be. But more important than strength is I want to be wise. I want to make sure I'm not dumb. I'm not making obvious mistakes. I'm learning from people that were smarter than me in the past. So the the aphorism I developed for that is the strong rule the weak, but the the wise rule the strong. It gives you the hierarchy of what's more important. You don't want to be weak. So what's being better than weak? Being strong. But what's being be- better than being strong is being wise, right? So he's saying like you don't want to be the person that can only manage a thing. That ha- that that is you have other people above you. Um, that have to tell you what to do and manage. And then above that, you have the person that's managing the money. You could also think about it as the, the person organizing the company, right? Not only is he managing money, but he's also managing machines and people and all the, all the different parts and constituencies of a company. So the bankers watching the trends in agriculture, industry, and trade, inviting and directing the flow of capital, putting our money double our money doubly and trebly to work, controlling loans and interest in enterprise, running great risks to make great gains, rise to the top of the economic period. He's t- calling this a banker, and in some cases, yes, that's true. Pure investors do that. It's also the, the, the job of an entrepreneur, though. Perhaps it is one secret of their power that having studied the fluctuations of prices, they know that history... This is such a freaking great idea. Listen to this. Perhaps, this is, perhaps it is one secret of their power that having studied the fluctuations of prices, they know that history is inflationary and that money is the last thing a wise man will hoard. History is inflationary. Who knows this? Hedy Green knew that. Warren Buffett knew that. Mark Spitznagel, the, the, when I did the book, The Dow of Capital, if you haven't listened to that podcast, please go back. He knows that. Sam Walton, Henry Clay Frick, Andrew Carnegie, go on and on and on. They're not, they don't just let money sit there. They, put it pro, they make it productive. They put it to use. The experience of the past leaves little doubt that every economic system must sooner or later rely upon some form of the profit motive to stir individuals and groups to productivity. So what is he telling us there? Incentives rule all. Something we learned over and over again on the three podcasts I've done about Charlie Munger. He talks about that over and over again. He's like, I've been in the top, what does he say, like 5% of my cohort my entire life understanding the, the impact of incentives on human behavior and not a, not a year goes by where I realize I don't understand it as much. Like it's more important than I thought it was. I butchered that quote because I don't have it in front of me. But uh, basically saying, you know, I know how important it is. I know how important incentives are to human behavior than most other people do. And I still, as time passes, uh underestimate how important it is since practical ability differs from person to person the majority of such abilities in nearly all societies is gathered in a minority of men the concentration of wealth is a natural result of this of this concentration of ability and regularly recurs in history again he's not telling us how to think he's saying i've studied this i've taken distilled i've taken in all this information this is my distillation this is the way i distill what i learned and what he's telling us in that sentence is practical ability differs from person to person. And the majority of such, ab- of such abilities in nearly all societies is gathered in a minority of people. The concentration of wealth is a natural result of this concentration of ability and regularly recurs in history. It happens over and over again. It happens today. It happened in the past. It will happen in the future. He's not saying, hey, I want, you know, a few people should have all the wealth. In fact, in parts of the book, he's like, it's very natural. A few people are going to have all the wealth and then there's going to be either a you can choose the path. It's going to be redistributed. It can do peacefully, and he gives examples of that, or it will be violent, but it will happen. 
um, the rate of concentration varies with the economic freedom permitted by morals and the laws. Uh, being a despot, so despotism, may for a time retard the concentration of wealth. Democracy, allowing the most liberty, accelerates it. And so this is where he gets to the point where his, his conclusion is that concentration of wealth is not tenable. We conclude that the concentration of wealth is natural and inevitable and is periodically alleviated by violent or peaceable partial redistribution. In this view, all economic history is the slow heartbeat of the social organism, a vast systole and diastole of concentrating wealth and compulsive recirculation. And then moving forward, I just have one sentence from this section, and it, it goes back to um, what I was trying to explain earlier, like why I think so more people should spend time learning and practicing so you can get better at your craft. Um, because even small percentage improvements can yield outsized returns. He says, every advance in the complexity of the economy puts an added premium upon superior ability. Let me read that again. Every advance in the complexity of the economy puts an added premium upon superior ability. In my opinion, the complexity of our economy is only going to continue to increase. So therefore, the premium on superior ability, superior knowledge, superior talent is going to continue to increase. And you can think about the accumulation of superior knowledge, superior talent, superior ability as a challenge, right? And so he has this, he and she, Will and Ariel Durant, the Durants. Why don't I just call them the Durants? Hey, you know, I just figured, realized too, after I finished the book, because I was looking for other books that he wrote, uh, that they wrote rather. Um, and there's a few that Will, I think, wrote by himself. Uh, one of them I'm going to pick up. It's called The Greatest Minds and Ideas of All Time. I'll probably, if I read it, I'll put it on this feed, obviously. But anyways, I just realized he has the same name as the founder of GM, who I did that three-part series on. But I, Billy Durant. Just by changing Will from Billy, I didn't. It took me a while to figure out that that's they have the same name. So that was really interesting. So, anyways, this is the Durants on what determines if a challenge will or will not be met. If we put the problem further back and ask what determines whether a challenge will or will not be met, the answer is that this depends upon the presence or absence of initiative and of creative individuals with clarity of mind and energy of will. He put, they put um, in parentheses, which is almost a definition of genius. So that's the, the presence of initiative uh, and of creative individuals with clarity of mind and energy of will. Capable of effective responses to new situations, which is almost a definition of intelligence. So I interrupted there. Let me read that because it's just a short paragraph. Let me read that to you in its entirety. If we put the problem further back and ask what determines whether a challenge will or will not be met, the answer is that this depends upon the presence or absence of initiative and of creative individuals with clarity of mind and energy of will, which is almost a definition of genius, capable of effective responses to new situations, which is almost a definition of intelligence. They have a section on growth and decay. And I particularly like this this idea. This is on death and on, on ideas being immortal. Is this a depressing picture? Not quite. Life has no inherent claim to eternity, whether in individuals or in states. It also, you could say that in business as well. I love that quote um, comes from Charlie Munger in the Tao of Charlie Munger. It says, over the, long or over the very long history, excuse me, over the very long term, history shows that the chances of any business surviving in a manner agreeable to a company owners are slim at best. 
So he, uh, Munger knows what the Durants are saying here, that everything is temporary. Uh, so it says, life has no inherent claim to eternity, whether in individuals or in states. Death is natural, and if it comes in due time, it is forgivable and useful. And the mature mind will take no offense for its coming. But do civilizations die? Again, not quite. Greek civilization is not really dead. Only its frame is gone, and its habitat has changed and spread. It survives in the memory, and in such abundance that no one life, however full and long, could absorb it all. That's he's echoing. They are echoing the same point they made earlier. Homer has more readers now than in his own day. The Greek poets and philosophers are in every library and college. This is what I mean about ideas are immortal. At this moment, Plato is being studied by a hundred thousand discoverers. Um, this selective survival of creative minds is the most real and beneficial of immortalities. And just a few more highlights. Um, if you want to read the book, I'll leave a link in the show notes. So you can you can uh, buy the book. We have multiplied a hundred times our ability to learn and report the events of the day and the planet. But at times we envy our ancestors whose peace was only gently disturbed by the news of their village, whose peace was only gently disturbed. So I've been thinking about this. Let me let me t- tell you my interpretation of what's happening. Um, I've been thinking about this, about my content diet. And it's the things that I let into my mind. And I'm pretty sure that the constant bombardment of information is not good so like for example today my phone's off uh i'm only reading books and making podcasts that's it i'm not looking at any social media i'm not responding to texts i'm not paying attention to what's going on in the news my brain needs a break and what i've realized is i probably read more than the average person right i think that's 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 almost certain it is certain but what I realize is the more I look at apps or my phone or the news or text or anything else, the shorter my attention span, my ability to read. And I think the benefit, why has reading books survived for hundreds of years? And I think it's because it's that forced meditation. There's very few other activities you can do in life that make you focus on a subject for hours and hours and hours at a time. And I think that's beneficial to us as opposed to just getting everything in like these short little dollops of mostly useless information. And I love what they're saying here. At times we envy our ancestors whose peace was only gently disturbed by the news of their village. I do not think constant bombardment where we have to siphon through so much noise to get to a small amount of signal is good. I, I, I don't think that's beneficial. to it's a, I'm, I'm speaking to myself. You, people can do other people can do whatever they want i don't want to engage in that and i whether i do this on you know taking a few days a week where i don't look at it at all or maybe just eliminate it from my life and just focus on really reading books listening to some podcasts where i know they have valuable information like i think that's just a better content diet for myself and i think that's a way to, to actually enjoy my life i don't want my peace disturbed by a lot by a lot of news or you know who bob hoffman is you ever heard of this guy he's in um it's interesting warren buffett in the biography snowball talks about he became obsessed with with Bob Hoffman, which was surprising to me because Bob Hoffman lived. He fought in World War One when he was a young man. Um, goes to you know just tr- he got exposed to mustard gas, almost died. Comes back and builds this giant company. Uh, he was into bodybuilding and, and taking care of your health, which is why I was surprised that Warren Buffett was into it. He, I think he built the name of his company's Welder. I can't remember the, the company, but he wrote a book called How to Be Strong, Healthy, and Happy. 
And I might read it for founders because I think it's fantastic. But in that book, he says something that's really interesting. And he's writing the book in the 1930s. So at that point, there's no television, there's no internet. And he talks about like so many people waste their time with listening to the troubles of others, of strangers. And that's what a lot of news is. And at the time, the primary method of news for them is newspapers and the radio. And so he's like, stop listening to the troubles of others and go in his saying, he's like, go spend 30 minutes taking care of your health by lifting weights, by exercising, uh, come home and go, you know, clean out your gutters, clean up your house, work on your business. He was essentially listing all these other things that are better use of your time than listening to the troubles of others. And that's his quote. And I've never thought of, I've never forgot that quote. And I feel a lot of what news is. And, and again, I think uh, you can have a deeper appreciation of how. Uh, what's the word, manipulative news can be if you go back and read the biographies of the people that started the modern news. Go read Joseph Pulitzer's biography. And you'll realize that you know people are like, oh, you got to listen to news, you're going to be better informed. That's absolutely not. You'd be better off reading a, a, a book that's 2,000 years old uh, that survived through thousands of years and that's still valuable to this day than reading the headlines and focus on, you know, what's happening at this very moment in time. So that's just something I've been thinking about a lot. And it's weird how you read books. You know, it's been on my mind. And then I find this one paragraph that's just nestled away randomly in this 100-page book. It's like, yes, you're exactly right. That's the he, That thought that the Durants were having, let's see what, they wrote these words 60 years ago, still resonates with me today. This is the stuff I need to be paying attention to. All right. Uh, let me just again a few more things here. Oh, this is I think these are kind of related. Our capacity for fretting is endless, and no matter how many difficulties we surmount, how many ideas we re- ideals we realize, we shall always find an excuse for being magnificently miserable. So again, the summary of that is our capacity for fretting is endless. We must manage the inevitable ups and downs that take place with our own minds. And I think one helpful uh, way to do that is stepping outside yourself. You realize the same way you feel today. Other people in the past have felt, people in the future will feel. It's not unique to you. Stepping outside of yourself is, okay, I'm going through this. I'm either really excited or really depressed, whatever it is. This is temporary. I have to manage this. And now we reached the, the last highlight and the note of myself is this is the perfect way to end a book on the lessons of history. To those of us who study history not merely as a warning warning reminder of man's follies and crimes, but also as an encouraging re- remembrance of generative souls, the past case ceases to be a depressing chamber of horrors. It becomes a celestial city, a spacious country of the mind. Wherein a thousand saints, statesmen, inventors, scientists, poets, artists, musicians, lovers, and philosophers still live and speak, teach, and carve, and sing. I don't care how long I write. I'll never be able to write a sentence as good as that. That's amazing. The historian will not mourn because he can see no meaning in human existence except that which man puts into it. Let it be our pride. And, and we ourselves may put meaning into our lives and sometimes a significance that transcends death. If a man is fortunate, he will, before he dies, gather up as much as he can of his civilized heritage and transmit it to his children. And to his final breath, he will be grateful for this inexhaustible legacy, knowing that it is our nourishing mother and our lasting life. Just absolutely fantastic. I'm so glad other people have recommended reading this book. I don't know if I would have found it otherwise. And there's just one thing that 
I know I left myself. I get. I wasn't even gonna share it on the podcast. It was just something personal. But this is something I'm aspiring that I'm personally aspiring to. Um, and it's in the back pages of the book. It talks about all these other books that uh, they wrote, and then this specific page is that um, Will Durant wrote. And somebody, what is this? The New York Times is the way they describe Will Durant. Uh, it says a warm-hearted, hard-working seeker who shared everything he found. And that's definitely what I'm trying to do with my life's work. Thank you very much for supporting my life's work. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much uh, for listening to all my podcasts. And thank you very much for supporting me. I will talk to you again soon.